So take a few moments to renew your bodhicitta motivation that you developed earlier today and really try to make sure that you're sitting here attending this class for the benefit of all sentient beings. Let's do a little bit of meditation on emptiness since we're looking at the Prasangika school. And they say that all phenomena, whatever exists, is empty of inherent existence and is merely labeled. The way that it does exist is that it's merely labeled by the mind. So one of the meanings of that is that when we try to find an object, we try to point to something that is an object, like a body or a car or a Buddha or whatever object we choose, we are not able to find something we can point to, we can put our finger on and say that is the object right there. But that's not how we see things. The way we see things, the way things appear to us, it seems as if we would be able to find things if we look for them. We would be able to point to something. They do exist over there, objectively, from their own side. So let's just analyze that with regard to our body because that's also something we're looking at in the Wednesday night class on the um, 37 harmonies, looking at the mindfulness of the body. Um, so our sort of gut level instinctive feeling is that a body is, is something that's really, really there. There's a real body, whether it's somebody else's body or our own body seems to exist objectively from its own side, undeniably there. But if our body did exist that way, we should be able to point to it, point to something. We can say that is the body. But as we've been looking at in the Wednesday night class, our body is composed of many, many, many parts skin, blood, organs. So just take a few moments and see if there is some part of the body among all of these different parts, some part that you can point to and say that is the body.
if it were possible to point to one part of the body and say that is the body. For example, some people might point to the brain because that's probably the most important part of the body, the part that controls the rest of the body, controls the various functions of the body. Some of you might think, well, that's the body. But if that were the case, then the brain could be separated from the rest of the parts of the body and it could stand alone and it could function on its own as a body. You could just have a brain sitting there by itself and say that is a body and it would be able to function as a body. Walk around and go to the gym, do gymnastics and so on. So clearly that isn't the case. But probably most people would argue that no, not a single part of the body is the body, but it's all the parts together, the collection of all those parts, all the different organs and bones and blood vessels and so on, all of the parts of the body are the body. They're all needed to make up a body. But then if none of the parts itself is a body, then that means all the parts of the body are non-bodies. The brain is not a body, the heart is not a body, the skeleton is not a body, the skin is not a body, and so on. So all the individual parts are non-bodies. So does it make sense that you can put together a whole bunch of non-bodies and then say that's a body? That would be like putting together a whole bunch of different kinds of fruits like some oranges and some apples and some bananas and so on, and then calling that a train. So none of the individual components of that mass of fruits is a train. So how could a whole bunch of them be a train? So likewise, how can a collection of non-bodies be a body? Especially a, a real, inherently existing body, objectively existing body. So these are just some ideas we can use to investigate 
our notions or our gut level feelings about things being real, inherently existing, objectively existing from their own side. The more we examine that kind of idea, the more it kind of falls apart, seems less real as it appears. But that doesn't mean the body doesn't exist. We do have a body, there are bodies, but what a body is, is just merely labeled. Body is just labeled in relation to a whole collection of parts, combination of parts, none of which is itself a body. So that's the meaning of being merely labeled. We just have a little bit left of the text that we've been going through, the text on the tenant systems by Jetson Chucky Gelson. So we've been on the last of the tenant system, Prasangika, and there's just this last point about presentation of grounds and paths. So we'll finish that and then see if there's any time for questions. Final questions. Okay, so presentation of grounds and paths. So this this is an explanation of how practitioners who wish to attain either nirvana or Buddhahood, um, how they progress on the path. How do they actually achieve their goals? And it has two parts. The first is objects of abandonment. So what are the things that need to be abandoned? eliminated, cleared out of the way for one to attain one's goal. So the first point says, um, yeah, so basically there are these two types of obscurations. First is called afflictive obscurations. So according to this school, Prasangika, what's included in um, afflictive obscurations? So these are the obscurations that prevent nirvana. So if we want to attain nirvana, we want to get out of samsara, not have to be born in samsara anymore. These are the things we have to get rid of. So they include um, coarse and subtle self-graspings and their seeds. So do you remember, does anyone remember what is a coarse uh, self-grasping? The absence of the or grasping at the self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Right. So, um, yeah, the conception grasping the existence of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. That's coarse self-grasping. And then subtle self-grasping. Grasping at an inherently existent self. Huh? Grasping at an inherently existent self. 
Yes, grasping at an inherently existing self. Is that all? Phenomena. And other phenomena, yeah. So not just persons, oneself and other persons, but all phenomena. So we, we have this conception that everything, whatever exists, oneself, others, all other phenomena and samsara, all phenomena beyond samsara, whatever exists, we conceive of them as being inherently existing or truly existing. So that's subtle self-grasping. So those are different types of ignorance. Both the coarse and the subtle self-graspings are different forms of ignorance. And then they have um, seeds. So um, oh yeah. So I wanted to mention yeah. Um, so the different kinds of self-graspings as well as the different kinds of afflictions have both um, innate forms. There's forms of them that ar arise in innately, meaning they've been in our mind for beginningless time. We didn't have to learn them from anybody. They're just inborn. So even animals and insects and newborn babies have those kinds of, of uh, afflictions. And then there's also acquired forms. So acquired forms are based on learning. I mean, usually they say learning wrong tenets, wrong philosophies, like you study a, a tenet system that tells you you have a permanent, unitary, independent soul or self, and you believe that. So that would be a acquired uh, ignorance, acquired misconception, something you just learned from others, but it isn't innate. And um, and then uh, other kinds of afflictions that are also acquired. It's not so clearly explained in the teachings what they include. They could include afflictions like anger or attachment that are connected with those kinds of misconceptions. Like if you really believe there's a permanent, unitary, independent self or soul, and then you're very attached to that view or any other kind of attachment that might arise on the basis of that, of that view, that would be a, an acquired attachment. And then anger could arise as well. If you're angry at those who don't believe in that kind of view and may disparage disparage that kind of view and tell you you're an idiot for believing that <laughs> you get angry so those are the examples of of uh, afflictions that are that are, are also acquired but the way it's explained in samsara nirvana buddha nature i think it's in that book yeah that it can also include other not just you know those kind of philosophical ideas but things that we learn, like the country that we're brought up in, the society we're brought up in, the family we're brought up in, we learn certain ideas, and, and we believe in those, and they could be completely wrong, completely mistaken. Um, and, and so 
believing in wrong ideas that we've learned from our family and our country and so on, as well as attachments and aversions, anger that, that arise based on those kind of views. So that's kind of a broader way of looking at acquired afflictions. And there was some time ago in the Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature class, there was a discussion about what happens to the acquired afflictions when we die. Do you remember that? Some people remember. <laughs> and and um, so it, yeah, it it didn't seem to be a, there didn't seem to be a conclusion to that. Um, you know whether they leave seeds on the mind or not. I think Venerable said they they uh, when we die they strengthen our our innate afflictions but it wasn't clear whether they leave seeds or not so i remembered when i was studying in the the ornament for clear realization um that in fact i went back and looked it up in the transcript and i found that our teacher told us that they do leave seeds and he gave the example of um let's say there's a person and they they follow a another, you know, a non-Buddhist um, school, and, and they learn that they have a permanent unitary independent self, and they believe in that. So during that lifetime, they have a manifest form of that particular misconception. And, um, and so that would be an example of an acquired affliction, acquired ignorance, believing in a permanent unitary independent self. And then he says, and then if this person dies, and then maybe in their next life, they're born as a dog. So as a dog, they would no longer have that kind of conception in their mind in a manifest way, but they could still have the seed of it. The seed of that conception would still be there in the mind. And so, yeah, it does seem that seeds of acquired afflictions do remain in the mind and go from life to life. And um, and I also wrote to, there's a monk I know in studying in Sarah Monastery, he's almost finished with his Geshe studies, Tenzin Gache. I asked him about this and he said, yeah, all the, all the Buddhist schools agree that uh, acquired afflictions leave seeds in the mind that can be carried from life to life. And he said, we can actually kind of see that in the way that people are attracted to certain views, right? Some people just have this instinctive attraction to believing in God, for example, or believing in um, a soul. And so that's probably because they had that kind of belief in previous lives. They held on to it very strongly. It left seeds in their mind. And then again, in this lifetime, they encounter teachings that nourish those seeds so they they can sprout so to me that makes that makes sense that there are seeds of acquired afflictions ignorance and other kinds of afflictions that can go from life to life so i just i had wanted to share that with you and i thought this is a good moment to do that but there's they're still not innate because innate are there from beginningless time and don't de depend on education, learning, 
Um, so a choir can still be their life after life, at least in seed form, but they, um, they aren't there from beginning with time and they depend on education. I guess that's how they differ. Yeah, well, Pema? Um, I have been wondering, you know, the, the cause of um, the second truth, the cause of Dukkha is karma and afflictions. So where do we abandon the karma? Uh, there were some things about that in the samsara nirvana buddha nature that we went through recently um karma i mean when you become an arya when you attain when you yeah attain the direct realization of emptiness you're you're an arya from that time on you no longer create any throwing karma karma that can cause a rebirth right remember that um so from that time on you're not creating any new karma to take rebirth in samsara but you still have karma that was created before it doesn't all just go away so it's still there in the mind um and in the case of like a bodhisattva a bodhisattva arya um they continue to take birth in samsara, not due to karma and afflictions. They're not um, under the control of karma and afflictions, but they have the ability to choose their rebirth through the power of prayer. What is it? Um, compassion and prayer. So out of compassion, they want to be born in samsara to help sentient beings, and they can pray to be born in different places so through compassion and prayer they take rebirth in samsara um, until until buddhahood yeah. and then the uh, um, hearers and solitary realizers um, from the time they become aryas um, they're you know from the path of seeing on they no longer create new throwing karma, but they still have old throwing karma, and they still have craving for a while until they reach you know, a much higher level. And so they continue to take birth in samsara, um, but they wouldn't be born in the lower realms. They would always be born either in the human realm or in the deva realms, and, um, and they do. So many of them continue to take rebirth in, in the upper realms as they are continuing to meditate and work their way up to their goal of nirvana. So they, they still have karma and they still take rebirth due to karma until they become arhats. And then once they're an arhat, they don't have to take rebirth anymore. But they say an arhat still has karmic seeds in their mind. Yeah, they still have the karma created in the past, but it can no longer ripen. It can no longer cause them to take rebirth because they have no more craving. Craving is the is it eighth, eighth link. So craving and grasping, eighth and ninth links, 
are necessary in order for karma to ripen and produce rebirth. They'd have no more craving and no more grasping. And so even though they have karmic seeds in their mind, those seeds will never ripen and cause them to take rebirth. So the, the seed kind of becomes sterile and... Yeah, I mean, I don't know what happens to them. <laughs> they just, they can't function. Um, wasn't there something also like with the meditation on emptiness? The more you meditate on emptiness, you can eliminate the seeds of karma. You can gradually eliminate those. So I suppose it depends on the individual person and how much meditation they do on emptiness um, and how much they've cleared up their karma. And even though they don't have the propelling karma for rebirth, but they still have the, uh, the karma can still manifest in terms of the environment they have. And like, you know, they talk about our hearts behaving like very strange way because of that. So it's with the latencies though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's explained as because of the latencies of ignorance. Um, latencies are not, they're not karmic seeds. They're the remnants of, uh, of the afflictions leave a sort of trace in the mind. But I don't think that's due to karma. Like, is it Mogliana who was beaten up? Beaten up. That's a wrapping of karma. Yeah, yeah. So they can still have not <laughs> karmic rebirth, not a rebirth due to karma, but they could still have other kinds of experiences like that, that example, getting beat up uh, or killed as well. Yeah. He was actually killed. Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't suffer. He didn't have any mental suffering, even though his body was all beaten up, but there was no mental suffering because mental suffering, they're beyond uh, mental suffering. So they could still have, you know, physical bad things happen to them, but no more mental suffering. Yeah, karma is quite complicated. So, so you're saying the meditation on emptiness is the one that purifies these? I think I remember that. I'd have to, I can't remember. Does anyone else remember? It was in the Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature. It was. It came up in one of the discussions about, um, yeah, meditation on emptiness, clearing away the old karmic seeds. I could be wrong, but I that's just there in my mind. <laughs> but I'd have to look it up. And then a Buddha, I think in the case of a Buddha, a Buddha is, has no more karma. I don't think they would have any more karmic seeds. Um, and of course, not creating any new karma. Is this negative karma? Because wouldn't they still be creating virtuous karma? By yeah, well, they use it. Yeah, but they use a different term. Okay. They call it chunle in Tibetan, um, which sometimes it's translated as enlightened activities yeah so they don't use the word karma the word karma is just used for (laughs) non-buddhas but in the case of buddhas the actions of a buddha they don't use the word karma they call it something else so in samsara nirvana buddha nature it says um purification by means of the wisdom directly realizing emptiness which begins with the path of seeing is the most powerful purification. It thoroughly destroys those seeds of non-virtue. And then Vibhashikas and Sautrantikas say it is not possible to purify seeds of destructive karma completely. Some result must be experienced. 
and as as proof, they recount Mogoyana's tragic death. Yeah, so that's talking about purifying non-virtuous karma, but even virtuous, like contaminated virtuous karma, you know, is still something that can cause rebirth and samsara. So, you know, one would want to be free of that as well, as long as one is still in samsara. But when you become an arhat, you don't need to worry anymore. You're free. Anyway, let's finish. Um, I want to be able to finish today. So we can, <laughs> let's leave um, time at the end. Okay, so then, um, okay, so afflictive obscurations uh, includes coarse and subtle self-graspings and their seeds. Um, and Plus, the afflictions, afflictions including attachment, aversion, jealousy, pride, and so on, all the various kinds of afflictions, um, and their seeds, and there's also seeds of afflictions, that arise due to the force of self-grasping. So, so, again, there's like... Uh, coarse self-grasping and subtle self-grasping, right? Two kinds of self-graspings. And both of those two forms of self-grasping can lead to afflictions. So there's afflictions that arise uh, from both of those two types of self-grasping. Uh, and in, in Prasangika, these are called coarse afflictions and subtle afflictions. So that's something that came up also in Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature on page 126, if you want to review that. <laughs> um, so it seems to be only Prasangika that talks about coarse afflictions and subtle afflictions. So I'll just read what it says in Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature. For Prasangika, grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is a coarse affliction, as are the anger, attachment, and other afflictions based on that grasping. Okay. So that's a more coarse level of afflictions. Whereas the ignorance grasping inherent existence, as well as the afflictions based on that, are subtle afflictions. So we also have anger, attachment, and so on, based on grasping um, inherent existence, inherently existing persons, inherently existing phenomena, and so on. So we have these two levels of afflictions, coarse and subtle, and all of those are included in afflictive obscurations. Yeah, They all need to be eliminated, cleared away to attain nirvana. And then the seeds, so uh, just to review, you've learned this before, but um, the difference between seeds and latencies, it's, it's kind of complicated <laughs> because um, there's yeah, these two terms, seeds and latencies. So latencies is like the bigger category. It's like the... Yeah, larger category. And within latencies, 
there are seeds. So seeds are actually a subcategory, a subgroup of latencies. They are a type of latencies. But then there's also latencies that are not seeds. So not all latencies are seeds. So I, I like to think of it like, let's say the group fruit, the category of fruit, that's like the big category. And then within fruit, there's apples. <laughs> so apples are definitely fruit, but not all fruit is apples. Pre-possibility. Like, huh? Pre-possibility. Yeah. So, um, so latencies are like fruit, and then seeds are like apples. They're like a subgroup of latencies. And the difference between them is um, that a seed, in talking about seeds of afflictions, the seed, a seed of an affliction has the power to give rise to another uh, experience of that type of affliction. So a seed of anger in the mind has the power to become anger, an experience of anger in our mind. Whereas a latency, um, we're going to talk about latencies in next uh, under obscurations to omniscience, that doesn't have that power. A latency uh, that's not a seed, a non-seed latency. A latency doesn't have the power to cause an actual experience of an affliction, like anger or attachment. But it has other functions, which we'll look at. So it is helpful to understand the difference between seeds and latencies. So all so the, seeds are latencies. Huh? All seeds are latencies. Seeds are latencies. All seeds are latencies. Yeah, they are latencies, but latencies are not necessarily seeds. That's how they're explained. So is seeds are having ceased, but latencies are not having ceased? We're not talking that's here not, about that's having not the same ceased. Thing? Okay. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I'm still not clear about having ceased, so <laughs> please don't ask me about that. <laughs> 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 I've been reading volume nine, <laughs> checking volume nine, and there's... Um, there's a section in there about having ceased. It's it's very helpful, very good explanation, but it's still like my mind just kind of goes like jello. <laughs> and and here when you're talking about latencies, are you are you using that for bakshak? Paksha, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, sometimes it's translated as imprint. <laughs> I think there are different terms. Yeah. Um, there's another one, nupa. Potency, potency. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure about the difference between bakchak and nupa, but yeah, latency I think is bakchak, or also translated as imprint. Yeah. Okay. So just to be clear, afflictive obscurations includes all afflictions, both coarse ones and subtle ones, and it also includes the seeds of afflictions which are left in the mind after after we get angry, then a seed of anger is left in there, there in the mind that has the power to give rise to another experience of anger. So we sure want to get rid of those. So all of those have to be eliminated in order to attain nirvana. Um, so this is one big difference between Prasangika and the other schools. Um, because for the other schools, even 
Svatantrika Madhyamika, they say that um, uh, the, the they do talk about the conception of true existence, not inherent existence, but they say the conception of true existence. But that is not an afflictive obscuration. That is not something that has to be eliminated to attain nirvana. Um, it only has to be eliminated to attain Buddhahood. So if you want to, if you're a Bodhisattva, you want to become a Buddha, you have to eliminate the conception of true existence, grasping true existence. But for hearers and solitary realizers who want to attain nirvana, not Buddhahood, all they have to eliminate is the grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. And the afflictions that are based on that, attachment and, and, and so on. So um, Prasangika is unique in saying that, no, that's not enough. <laughs> and in fact, this is quite important. Um, because according to Prasangika, yeah, if, if somebody, so the other schools say, if you want to become an arhat, you want to get out of nirvana, you just have to meditate on, sorry, you want to get out of samsara and attain nirvana, you, you just have to meditate on the emptiness of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Mm -hmm. And once you realize that, and you get rid of that grasping and all the afflictions related to that, you're free. You're an arhat. <laughs> you're out of samsara. But that is not true. And so in um, Chandrakirti, in his text called Clear Words, um, he quotes, there's a sutra called Sutra on the Miserliness of One in France. <laughs> and in this sutra, Guru Shakyamuni Buddha is talking to Manjushri and telling Manjushri that, I'll just summarize it. He's saying, um, those who uh, still see like the Four Noble Truths, samsara and nirvana, they, they still see things as truly existing or inherently existing. Then, and then even if they meditate on the Four Noble Truths and, you know, they think they have uh, attained true cessations and true paths and attain the state of arhat, but they're still thinking of things as truly existing or inherently existing. But in fact, what all they're doing is temporarily suppressing their manifest afflictions. They're not eliminating their afflictions. They're not completely abandoning their afflictions. They're just um, suppressing them. And they may think they've become an arhat and attain nirvana, but then when they come to the end of their life, and they die at the time of death, craving might arise. And then they have doubt and think, oh, Buddha said, you know, there's there's nirvana and, I, and no more rebirth, but I thought I've attained that. Here I, I see myself going to another rebirth. And then they may develop wrong views, negative views towards the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. They may end up even going through an unfortunate rebirth. Not everybody has that, but some have that. And so there's a big danger in having that misunderstanding, that wrong idea about what you need to do to get out of samsara. 
So then the Buddha went on to explain in this sutra the correct way to understand the Four Noble Truths to be free of samsara. You have to meditate on the Four Noble Truths, understanding that they are empty of inherent existence. So they actually talk about two ways of meditating on the Four Noble Truths. I think that comes up in samsara, nirvana, buddhi nature as well. Um, a gross way of meditating on the Four Noble Truths, where you think of them as being based on this conception of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, and how that gives rise to afflictions and karma and suffering and so on and so forth. That's like a coarse way, a gross way of talking about the Four Noble Truths. But then the subtle way of meditating on the Four Noble Truths is where you think of um, grasping at true existence or inherent existence as being the root cause of samsara, the root cause of suffering, the thing that keeps us in samsara and all the afflictions arising from that. So that's the subtle way of meditating on the Four Noble Truths. Does that make sense? You've probably heard that before. So anyway, <laughs> According to the Prasangika, it's very important to understand what, it, what really is the root of samsara. What is it that keeps us stuck in samsara? And that is the ignorance grasping at true existence or inherent existence, as they explain it. And that's the thing that needs to be overcome, plus all the other afflictions based on that, if we want to be free of samsara. And those of us who want to attain enlightenment also have to do that. So this is one of the unique explanations of, of Prasangika. Is that clear? And then the second type of obscurations are obscurations to omniscience, also known as cognitive obscurations. So what's included there are the latencies, the pakchak, um, the imprints of grasping to true existence, so the ignorance grasping things as truly existing or inherently existing. So even after that has been eliminated, you know, we've abandoned that ignorance, but the latencies are still there. We say it's like the smell of the garlic, even after you've taken the garlic away, but the smell lingers for a while. And so, um, yeah, latencies are, both seeds and latencies are um, abstract composites. So they're not form, they're not consciousness, they're that third type of impermanent phenomena. Um, so those remain in the mind even after um, grasping at true existence has been eliminated and all the other afflictions have been eliminated. And the, the latencies cause the appearance of things as truly existing. So that's why um, even after eliminating ignorance, when you're not in meditative equipoise, directly realizing emptiness, you're walking around in you know, daily life, things you see appear truly existing. Even though you know, you've realized they don't exist that way, but they they still appear that way. So that appearance happens because of the latencies of grasping to true existence. 
And um, there's also latencies of the other afflictions, greed, hatred, ignorance. Um, and then it says, yeah, all factors of mistaken dualistic appearance that arise due to the power of these latencies. So those are also included in obscurations to omniscience. And then there was another one that was mentioned in um, Samsara, Nirvana, Buddha, Nature, the defilement that um, prevents the mind from seeing the two truths simultaneously. So that's also a type of obscuration to omniscience. So how to get rid of those? How can we abandon the obscurations to omniscience? Yeah. Powered by an understanding of emptiness. Yeah, bodhicitta isn't really the antidote, but it's the antidote is the wisdom realizing emptiness, the wisdom directly realizing emptiness. But bodhicitta empowers that wisdom, gives it the strength to be able to eliminate the obscurations to omniscience, which is why bodhisattvas are, are able to eliminate the obscurations to omniscience but the hearers and solitary realizers are not able to do that because they don't have bodhicitta and the vast merit that bodhisattvas accumulate um, on their path, practicing the six perfections. Okay, so then according to Prasangika, just, just to be, make it clear, um, afflictions, no, um, afflictive obscurations are um, consciousnesses, like ignorance and so on, and they're seeds of afflictions, whereas obscurations to omniscience or cognitive obscurations are not consciousness. They're never consciousness, um, because according to Svatantrika, um, the grasping at true existence, that ignorance grasping to existence, that's a consciousness, and that is an obscuration to omniscience. So the seed of the afflictions are consciousnesses? No. Okay. No. No, I'm just saying afflictive obscurations include, what's included in afflictive obscurations are consciousnesses, such as ignorance, greed, hatred, and so on, and the seeds of those, the seeds of those afflictions, which are not consciousness, they are um, abstract composites. But when it comes to obscurations to omniscience, none of those are consciousnesses. They are only uh, the latencies, which are abstract composites, the type of impermanent phenomena. Okay, so then, Last, oh yeah, so then the actual presentation of grounds and paths. Um, so this is talking about how the hearers, solitary realizers, and bodhisattvas traverse their paths. The first point says, followers of all three vehicles mainly meditate on subtle selflessness of persons and phenomena. So they, they, they all have as their main object of meditation the um, subtle selflessness, which is 
the emptiness, emptiness of inherent existence of persons and phenomena. So they all three have to meditate on that in order to eliminate um, all the afflictions, all the afflictive obscurations. And it says mainly, but because that's the main thing they meditate on, but they also meditate on other things such as impermanence and coarse selflessness. But that's the main object of meditation because that's the thing that will enable them to eliminate the afflictions, the afflictive obscurations. So they all have the same main object of meditation, but, next point, there are differences in their main objects of abandonment. So what they abandon. So hearers and solitary realizers mainly abandon the two self-graspings, um, coarse and subtle uh, self-graspings, and the seeds of those. Again, it says mainly because they also abandon all the other afflictions, attachment, aversion, and so on. So all afflictions are abandoned by hearers and solitary realizers. Whereas bodhisattvas mainly abandon the latencies, the obscurations to omniscience. So again, it says mainly because they also have to abandon all the afflictive obscurations. Um, but their main object, the main thing they want to eliminate is the latencies. Because those are the things that uh, prevent omniscience, Buddhahood, which is their goal. And what enables them to um, abandon those latencies is bodhicitta and the practice of the six perfections, accumulating that vast amount of merit that empowers their wisdom so they can eliminate the latencies. Okay, one last slide. So this is something that came up recently in the Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature class. Um, the terms Nirvana with, with remainder, Nirvana without remainder. So Prasangika has a unique way of explaining these terms. Um, so nirvana without, it starts with nirvana without remainder, because that's actually what um, an arhat attains first. And so it refers to suchness. Now the term, the word suchness is another term for emptiness. There's lots of different terms for such, uh, for emptiness. Suchness, reality, sphere of reality. So it's just another of those terms. So it's emptiness. Uh, suchness, emptiness, distinguished by the abandonment of the two self-graspings and their seeds in the minds of arhats in meditative equipoise. So you probably remember in the Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature class that according to Prasangika, Nirvana is emptiness, but not just any emptiness, not the emptiness of the table, <laughs> but the emptiness of a mind, and not just any mind, but a mind that has abandoned at least the afflictive obscurations, like the mind of an arhat. Okay, so you have an arhat, you have the mind of the arhat, and then you have the emptiness of that mind. 
know, emptiness of inherent existence of that person's mind. So that's what Prasangika points to as being nirvana, the emptiness of that being's mind. And then, yeah, so again, so that's what nirvana is. It's the emptiness of the mind of an arhat. And then nirvana without remainder is the emptiness of that arhat's mind when they are in meditative equipoise. So when they're in meditative equipoise, that means they are single-pointedly focused on emptiness. Does anything else appear at that time? No. Only emptiness appears, and um, so there's no appearance of anything else, including true existence or conventionalities. So there's this term dualistic appearances, which can refer to other kinds of things that appear to the mind besides emptiness. So no dualistic appearances appear to the mind of the arhat when they're in meditative equipoise. So um, those dualistic appearances are what is referred to by the term remainder. So remainder <laughs> means remainder of dualistic appearances. So nirvana without remainder is, you know, when there's no dualistic appearances appearing in the mind of this arhat. Does that make sense? So it's the emptiness of the arhat's mind when they are in meditative equipoise on emptiness, free of any dualistic appearances. That's the meaning of nirvana without remainder. And then nirvana with remainder is when the arhat is not in meditative equipoise. They're doing other things, and so they're, um, they're seeing conventional phenomena, their own bodies and people and and so on and so forth. And, um, and, and, and because they haven't abandoned the um, obscurations to omniscience, they still have the appearance of true existence. Things still appear truly existing. Even though they realize emptiness, they know things aren't existing truly, but they, they still appear that way. So there's still the appearance of true existence and also the appearance of conventionalities. So those are dualistic appearances that are appearing to the mind of the arhat when they're not in meditative equipoise. So that's the meaning of nirvana without remainder. It's the emptiness of the arhat's mind when they're not in meditative equipoise and they have this remainder of dualistic appearances. That makes sense? Do you remember how the other schools explain these terms, nirvana, with and without remainder? How do they explain them? Seven grains of the karmic seeds. The aggregates. Yeah, the term remainder refers to the aggregates, mainly the body. Mainly it means the body. So what would be nirvana with remainder? Still having the body. Right, so when you're an arhat, you become an arhat, but you still have this old body, <laughs> um, which, yeah, anyway, you'll have your uh, ordinary body. Um, so the remainder then refers to, yeah, I don't know if there's any other aggregates that they have that 
would be included in remainder, but I think it's mainly the body. And then nirvana without remainder is when they die, they separate from this old body. And then what happens to them after that? Different schools have different stories. I like the story of being in a lotus, an Amitabha <laughs> with a body of the nature of mind, a mental body, sitting in the lotus until the Buddha knocks on the petals and wakes them up and says, come on, you got more work to do. But anyway, they no longer have that um, kind of, I guess it would have been a contaminated body. Yeah, it would have been a contaminated body thrown by karma and afflictions. They're finished with that. Yeah, so there's quite a difference in explanation of those terms from the other schools and uh, Prasangika. And as far as I know, these terms, um, nirvana without, with remainder, without remainder, that only applies to arhats, um, you know, here in solitary realizer arhats, but not Buddhas. They don't use those terms for Buddhas. I don't think so. Wouldn't they say that the Buddha also has a contaminated body? The lower schools say that. Yeah. But not the Mahayana schools. But they don't refer to him as having attained nirvana with remainder? Um, they might, yeah. The Vaibhashikas and the Sotrantikas. So their view is that Shakyamuni Buddha, when, yeah, he was still a bodhisattva. He was an ordinary bodhisattva when he was born as Prince Siddhartha. He wasn't even an Arya bodhisattva. He was an ordinary bodhisattva. And his body was still a contaminated contaminated body, <laughs> um, the result of karma and afflictions. And then, um, and then when he sat under the Bodhi tree and meditated, then he went into the path of seeing and went all the way to Buddhahood <laughs> in one meditation setting. And so even when he, be, when he became a Buddha, he still had a contaminated body. He That's their be. view. So they would probably say, they would probably use these terms, oh, that was nirvana with remainder, and then when he passed away, that's nirvana without remainder. So they may use those terms for the Buddha, but not in, the Mahayana schools have a different explanation. I don't think we would use those terms for Buddha. Also, because a Buddha is always in meditative equipoise on emptiness, um, and at the same time, they see conventionalities. But there's no remainder of the appearance of true existence. And to the mind of a Buddha, nothing appears truly existing, inherently existing. And that's the main meaning of remainder. Remainder is um, that kind of appearance of things is truly existing. So that doesn't appear to the mind of a Buddha. Okay, so one last bit. Um, holders of the Mahayana lineage, who are definite in the lineage from the beginning, abandon afflictive obscurations upon attaining the eighth ground, and abandon obscurations to omniscience upon attaining Buddhahood and the four bodies. So this expression, holders of the Mahayana lineage who are definite in the lineage, that means somebody who enters the Bodhisattva path from the beginning, rather than somebody who was previously 
um, and here arhat or a solitary realizer arhat, and then enter the bodhisattva path. So those who are right from the beginning on the bodhisattva path, so when they abandon the afflictive obscurations is, it's actually at the end of the seventh ground. So from the eighth ground on, beginning of the eighth ground on, they have no more afflictive obscurations. And from that time on, they start to abandon the obscurations to omniscience, the cognitive obscurations. And when they've completely abandoned all the cognitive obscurations, that's the point at which they become Buddha and attain the four Buddha bodies. So do you remember Svatantrika? How, how does Svatantrika explain the abandoning of the obscurations by a bodhisattva? Simultaneous. And they yeah. Better than the last, the, the, the and then the last the afflictive obscurations with the cognitive obscurations upon attaining Buddhahood. Yeah, that's according to the Yogacara Svatantrika Madhyamika, which is this, the same school as in the ornament. So according to that school, Bodhisattvas abandon both types of obscurations, afflictive obscurations and obscurations to omniscience, at the same time, starting from the path of seeing, starting from the first ground. So they're abandoning both obscurations all the way up to Buddhahood. And it's only when they become Buddhas that they have completely eliminated all the obscurations, both afflictive and um, non-cognitive. But the other uh, school, the Sotrantika Svatantrika um, Madhyamaka, has slightly different explanation. They, they start the same way. The, a bodhisattva starts abandoning both types of obscuration simultaneously from the path of seeing. But when they reach the eighth ground, they have finished abandoning all the afflictive obscurations. So that's in that way they are like prasangika. But then they still have more obscurations to omniscience to get rid of. So those are abandoned on the last three grounds. And they become Buddhahood. They become Buddhas. So it's a little different. So then I was wondering. So this is talking about someone who's definite in the Mahayana lineage from the beginning. But what about the um, arhats? They followed the path, the Hinayana path, hearer's path, or solitary realizer's path. Became arhats. And so they abandon all the afflictive obscurations. They're free of those. But then eventually they enter the Mahayana path. And um, they have to start from the beginning. <laughs> they have to start with a path of accumulation, generate bodhicittas, attain a path of accumulation, then proceed on a path. So they've already abandoned all the afflictive obscurations. So when do they start abandoning the obscurations to understand? <laughs> Would it be the same on the eighth round? I would think so. I, I couldn't imagine that they would do it faster than the bodhisattvas. <laughs> but that means they're not actually abandoning anything until they reach the eighth ground. Nothing is being abandoned because they've already abandoned all the afflictive observations. But they do need to accumulate massive amounts of merit. They Yeah, they have to accumulate a lot of merit and 
I'm so my guess is I'm not sure 100% sure but my guess is that probably they also start abandoning obscurations to omniscience when they get to the eighth ground. But you do say that it's more difficult for them to accumulate merit because they don't have afflictions, but and also I mean they don't have afflictions and it's not um, like um, to get bodhicitta going. <laughs> well, I think because they spent so much time not having bodhicitta and focusing on their own um, goal of nirvana, that they're just not familiar with thinking about all sentient beings. So it's harder for them to, you know, have that that kind of mind. And they, I've also heard it said, I can't remember where I heard this, but because they had attained that blissful state of nirvana already, they spent quite a bit of time absorbed in that experience before they entered the Mahayana path, that they still sometimes go back into that. You know, it's like a habit that they have to get absorbed in the bliss of nirvana. And so I guess they can, yeah, that continues to happen even when they're on the bodhisattva path. They get absorbed in that bliss of nirvana. And then during that time, you know, not really creating much merit for enlightenment. That's in samsara nirvana nature. That was in samsara nirvana nature. So it takes them longer than three commas great eons yeah. to progress to the three paths. Yeah, so they say it's much better just to start from the Maya path from the beginning. You'll get there faster. I well, wonder if other things that they need to unlearn. Because the example that I've heard given is like the arhat, the equivalent is they have built a, a really nice house, but now they need to build a skyscraper for the bodhisattva. So <laughs> you first have to destroy your house, get the foundation, dug up everything. You know, you have to like um, undo everything that they've done, lay down the proper foundation for the skyscraper that the bodhisattva need. Uh, so that takes a lot more effort. Well, I don't know, do they have to dismantle things? That... Well, well, I yeah, it doesn't sound quite right that they have to dismantle everything because they have been meditating on emptiness, emptiness of inherent existence. They've realized that, and that's, you know, a very important part of the Bodhisattva's path. Um, so they certainly don't want to dismantle that. But their meditation on emptiness was not imbued with compassion, great compassion and bodhicitta. It was just, you know, focused on their own attainment of nirvana. So, yeah, I don't know. There's not, a, I haven't come across a lot of explanation about what our hearts do once they enter the mind. Because sometimes I think it's like propaganda and all like you know, they just want to encourage you not to go into the our hearts path and just, just yeah. Uh, so they tell you all these things. So I, I I don't know how true they are. Yeah. Yeah, there's things in the sutras and some of the Mahayana sutras that are kind of I guess quite disparaging of of that path, but. It could be because that was more known in India at the time. You know, it was much. It was more publicly known, 
and more people knew about it and had a great devotion to it and so on. So I think they were trying to point out, you know, the downside <laughs> of that particular path and um, the, the upside of, of the Bodhisattva path to get people interested in that. So, yeah, I, I was never comfortable with this sort of disparaging remarks about <laughs> Curers and solitary realizers. And I really like the way the Dalai Lama talks about it. He really um, emphasizes having great respect, great devotion. It was taught by the Buddha. Um, and there are people who are inclined to that. that that's their, what what's, fits best for them, what works best for them. So it wouldn't be right to disparage. But on the other hand, I, I think it, it's probably true that it would take longer to get to enlightenment that way. Because some people think, well, you can, you can become an arhat in three lifetimes if you follow the hero's path. And then once you're an arhat, then you can enter the Mahayana path and just zoop, you know. But they say, well, it's not quite like that because of this tendency to get absorbed in the bliss of nirvana and be reluctant to emerge from that to then generate bodhicitta and great compassion and and follow the bodhisattva's path. Would it not matter how long you are because you have no affliction, so there's no suffering, you're not but sentient beings are waiting for you. Perspective is three, five countless great yours, ten countless great yours. There's no anger, there's no attachment. Like so, what if it's twenty countless great yours? Oh, I think they say, yeah, we want, you know, the ideal attitude of a bodhisattva is I want to get to enlightenment as quickly as possible so that I can help sending beings. They're there in hell, burning in terrible pain and suffering. I don't want to make them wait. <laughs> so, you have to put others before yourself. Hmm? You have to put others' happiness yeah. before your own. Yeah. You have to practice your own. Okay, so no, anyway, that's it. <laughs> we have finished the text. It's kind of a short text. There's other texts on tenets that are more long and complicated, but it's kind of a nice start. And then with this as a basis, then you can learn other aspects of the four schools, which happens anyway, listening to His Holiness and Venerable Children and Jeffrey and so on. So this is like a, a good basis to go on. Start with. Thank you. Thank you very so much. Thank you for your class. Thank you. Well, it's good for me to renew, uh, to review a long time ago that I studied this. So this mm -hmm. helped me to remember some things I've forgotten. Thank you. <laughs> Let's dedicate the merit. Share this with all sentient beings that it will help them get out of samsara and get to enlightenment as quickly as possible. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of the Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore.